Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Jam, a podcast dedicated to analysing the week's news and top topics through a political science lens. I'm Michael, joined as ever by Jeevan. Jeev, how are you today? I'm I'm very well this morning, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. I, I'm absolutely fantastic. So we are delighted today to be joined by a special guest, Professor Christoph Schaffrello. Now, Christoph is a professor of Indian politics and sociology at the King's India Institute, and his latest book is titled Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy. Christoph, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. We're glad to have you on the podcast today. So we're joined by Christoph today to discuss why the farm laws in India were repealed. We're also going to discuss the growing influence of Indian farmers and what this decision tells us about Modi's style of governance. So, Christoph, I guess a good place to start would be why were the farm laws repealed and why, why now? Well, let's first return to what was this reform about? You know, what were these uh, farmers' laws? Uh, because we keep talking about farmers' laws and sometimes you forget what, was, what were these laws about. And they were about three things, basically. Um, one was to remove the stock limit on farm products imposed by the Essential Commodities Act, and that was an important dimension. Another one uh, dimension was uh, to end the state-monitored agricultural produce market committees, uh, which were uh, almost um, monopolizing marketing of farm products. And the third one was, of course, to encourage contract farming. These laws were supposed to enhance the bargaining power of farm sector vis-a-vis the non-farm sector. That was the argument. The government of India uh, argued that uh, farmers would benefit. And they did not believe that they would benefit. And they protested uh, as early as the late 2019, when these laws were passed in Parliament, in a very special session, by the way. The session was very hectic. Uh, in fact, the upper house were in chaos. Uh, and, and the opposition people said, we have not really had an opportunity to vote. It has been passed without any vote, which is, which is a, 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 new, a new way for parliamentary life uh, in India. Anyway. Immediately after these laws were passed, uh, farmers protested that, in fact, they would, these laws, um, favor entry of private capital in agriculture and in agribusiness at the expense of farmers. And what they said primarily was, we don't want these laws because we want price floors through the minimum support prices which were in place, which are in place. And that's what they defended. So they protested for 10 months, demonstrated, and uh, it came to Delhi, uh, Delhi being the epicenter, of course. The two states where mobilization was at its peak were most, uh, uh, I would say, uh, significant, were Punjab, and, and Ariana, but West UP also, West Uttar Pradesh was also very much uh, mobilized. So it's surrounding, these three states were surrounding uh, Delhi. And, uh, and, and this, this is where for 10 months, uh, farmers protested uh, and, and there was a relay. 
Um, many of them went back to their form, but, but others took over from those who had to go back to their form. Um, it was a constant mobilization, an unprecedented mobilization. You have really to go back in history very, very deep, uh, very far, in fact. You have to go back to the 80s for seeing a mobilization of, of that kind. Um, they suffered a lot. Uh, it seems that something like 700 farmers died in the course of this protest for one reason or the other. Uh, of course, COVID probably took its toll, and um, and, and 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 the winter time uh, also uh, took its toll. Um, without mentioning other factors uh, like police repression uh, and, and and repression by vigilante groups, or or even the son of an Uttar Pradesh minister, who uh, whose car, whose SUV. Uh, killed four farmers a few weeks ago. So they suffered a lot, but never stopped this mobilization, continuously joined hands uh, with some caveats. Uh, I, I would mention one caveat uh, that is certainly a, a sociological issue, uh, unity between farmers and if you want, landless peasants were a problem, was a problem. Um, and we saw some differences, some tensions between these two components of what is uh, uh, the Indian uh, uh, rural uh, scenery, if you want, or landscape. But still, uh, at the end, after so many months of mobilization, uh, the government and Narendra Modi himself had to withdraw these laws. So your question is, why now? And the response is easy <laughs> for a change. Elections around the corner in two states, which have been uh, epicenters of the uh, mobilization, Punjab and, and Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh is particularly important for BJP. You know, BJP won with uh, majority, uh, full-fledged majority in 2017. Uttar Pradesh has a record number of uh, MLAs, members of the State Assembly, a record number of MPs, members of uh, Parliament in the lower house, BJP needs Uttar Pradesh. And uh, uh, I think this is the main reason, to, to make sure that uh, peasants would not side fully with the opposition. The opposition in Uttar Pradesh was exploiting these uh, farmers' laws, uh, to their benefit, including Akhilesh Yadav, who is the leader of the opposition in Uttar Pradesh. Now, will this work? Will it be sufficient for diffusing the anger of the peasants vis-à-vis -vis BJP? Uh, elections will tell. But before the elections, which are uh, supposed to take place in February, uh, we'll have another important um, moment that is coming soon, uh, the winter session. I mean, the the coming session of, of Parliament, because these laws have been withdrawn, but the Parliament has to uh, look into it. Something else has to take place. And by the way, peasants are not going back to their farms till these new uh, programs, these new laws are passed. So um, we are still in the middle of the process. It's not, it's not over. The story is not finished. Yeah, that's really, really 
interesting stuff. I mean, one thing I'd want to pick up on is like why why is there a conflict over these particular farm laws? Like thinking about the economics here. So look, it is true the Indian agricultural sector it does need reform. You know, these subsidies don't help. Like the farming sector is incredibly inefficient. It makes up half the workforce, but only 18% of India's GDP. Most of the land holdings are less than two hectares. So the minimum prices help to keep these farmers in the agricultural sector and these small unproductive farms alive. It's true that are environmentally damaging. So at the moment, Delhi has close to have to close schools because the pollution was so bad. We know these subsidies are incredibly costly, about 10% of government expenditure. And um, we know that also there's, you know, low productivity at the moment leads to kind of stagnating incomes. So on the face of it, you could see why the Indian government wanted to reform in this way. The Indian government wanted to say, actually, you kind of move these farmers into other work and you make these bigger, more productive farms. It helps to increase growth. But the reason why that that doesn't really work, and I've heard quite glibly kind of you know said by many commentators that it'd be good for the Indian farming sector, indeed the Indian economy. The first of which is it's not clear where these farmers are supposed to go once you get rid of these small farms, once you get rid of this minimum support price. How do you gainfully employ them again? Because if there aren't enough jobs, well, there aren't enough jobs at the moment in India, unemployment is high, youth unemployment is incredibly high. And if there was a thriving manufacturing sector, a lot of these farmers would have already left that sector. The truth is that India doesn't create enough jobs. The other concern is you have this huge kind of corporate buyer buying your crops. You have a single buyer. A private monopoly isn't that much better, in many ways worse than a private or a state monopoly, or rather here a monopsony, a single buyer. These farmers are stuck selling to a given private sector interest. I know there's worries as well about the Ambani family, family in particular getting involved. And finally, when you combine those two things together, you have a situation where, yes, growth isn't increasing. You have a particular place in India going into decline, specifically the farming belt of India. And obviously, we saw the farms of Punjab and Haryana who tend to benefit the most of these minimum prices. And then you also get, alongside economic stagnation and decline, there's also a story here about political instability. You know, in some sense, Brexit is a story about you know, the manufacturing decline post Thatcher. Similarly, Trump is a story about manufacturing decline post Rust Belt. It's not so much of a stretch of the imagination to say, you know, you get rid of this minimum support price, you destroy a, a farming sector, and all of a sudden you have places that are also politically radicalised. These areas of India as well, I think particularly Punjab in the 80s, have kind of contributed to kind of political instability and certainly undermined uh, kind of the unity of India in that particular sense. Yeah, you have listed many issues which are indeed very relevant. And um, we need to look at uh, these farm laws indeed, uh, farmers' laws indeed, in, in, in a larger context. And in the context of what I would call uh, the crisis of Indian agriculture. Uh, a crisis that is indeed related to many of the factors uh, you have listed. Uh, one of them is the fragmentation of the um, households. Uh, we have now a very large number of households which are minuscule, which are in the category we called marginal, up to one hectare, you can say 
that's marginal. And the percentage of households that is marginal has increased continuously uh, in the last uh, decades. Uh, it was uh, less than 39% in the 60s. It's now 68%. 68% of the persons of India cultivate less, till less than one acre. That's not viable. Less than one acre is not viable. You can't make a living on this. So that's one issue, and uh, demography doesn't help. Another huge issue is uh, the lack of irrigation. The uh, percentage of the um, uh, net sown area that is irrigated in India is only 48%, less, less than half of the net sown area, which means that uh, you have one crop a year. Uh, basically, which is which is not sufficient. These two problems, plus the water issue, water is now a huge problem in places like uh, uh, Punjab and Ariana, largely because in these places, and West UP as well, uh, because in, in these three places, um, the Green Revolution uh, found expression mostly in uh, sugarcane and sugar, well, partly in sugarcane, um, sugarcane uh, needs a lot of water. The water tables are very low. They have been completely depleted. And the persons who can afford to have tube wells uh, going sufficiently deep in the earth is very small. Very few persons can uh, afford to do these investments. And this is why um, the farmers' laws um, took shape. I mean, uh, uh, arrived, happened, occurred in in a context where peasants were already uh, distressed in a very, very bad uh, socio-economic and psychological situation. To such an extent that uh, when we look at um, the young generation, uh, this is what Binagarwal has shown, uh, most of the sons of farmers want to leave village India. Most of them don't want to continue the job of their parents. But where to go? And this is why you have this huge problem of uh, slow industrialization. You can even say disindustrialization in India. The percentage of the um, industry of the manufacturing sector in India uh, is declining in terms of um, jobs, especially. So if you cannot make a living because of your work as a farmer, but you cannot find a place uh, in the industrial development of the country, you're just getting poorer poorer and poorer. And that's what uh, the last statistical data we have have shown. You know, this is what the National Survey of India, Sample Survey of India, has shown. For the first time in the history of India, the percentage of rural uh, Indians uh, living below the poverty line has increased. For the first time 
2017-2018. Between 2011-2012 and 2017-2018, the percentage of people be living below poverty line in rural India has increased by almost 9%. You can, you can really figure out uh, um, how structural issues have uh, made their life uh, so complicated. Not only structural issues, policies as well. And, and this is why they were so suspicious vis-a-vis -vis the Modi government. Because the Modi government, even before these farmers' laws, had not helped at all the farmers. There is one question in particular that they keep returning to, and that is the minimum support prices. Now, the, the prices, more generally speaking, the, the prices uh, a person can get uh, on the market. There is a report by the Swaminathan Committee that has been uh, submitted many years ago and that the Modi government had said it would implement it, that demanded a 50% increase of minimum support prices over the cost of production. And this commitment uh, has not been um, kept by the Modi government. On the contrary, on the contrary, the price uh, a person can get for his production has uh, declined in terms of the terms of trade. You know, the terms of trade between uh, urban India and rural India has uh, evolved at the expense of the peasants. You know, they have to pay for the inputs, fertilizers, uh, any kind of tools, um, mechanical engine, anything, with an inflation rate that is much higher than the kind of price they get on the market. So uh, this is one of the reasons why even before the um, farms laws, farmers' laws, you had so many protests. You know, we, we should remember 2017, for instance, was a year of many peasants' protests. Uh, in Mansoor, in, in, in Madhya Pradesh, five protesting farmers were uh, killed in, in, by police firing. And in March 2018, you had a long march of farmers in Mumbai. And in November 2018, you had uh, again a farmers' protest jolting Delhi. The farmers' laws intervened in the context of uh, a distress that was already there. Uh, ju just one footnote, because this is also very revealing. Not only you could not get a job in the industry that is now 15% of the GDP, nothing, but you see for the first time the percentage of uh, the workforce engaged in agriculture, instead of declining, as it was doing, rising again in 2020. People are back in the village uh, because they can't find a job uh, in, in, in the industry. And the last point, the very last point, is um, has to do with the way the government of India favored its constituency, urban constituency, at the expense of the peasants. The government of India is 
showing what Ashok Gulati called an urban consumer bias. To keep the price of food low for the middle class of India, the urban voters, which are the core support um, base of, of the BJP. How do they do that? Well, they do that in particular by somewhat manipulating uh, the way exports and imports uh, are uh, regulated. When you have um, low prices on the international market, instead of rising the duties, you minimize the duties and the market is flooded with imports of, for instance, soya bean oil, to such an extent that the Indian producers can't sell their stuff anymore. And when on the contrary, the price rises of, for any commodity uh, on the uh, market, domestic market of India, uh, the government of India imposes a, uh, an export ban. So uh, it, it helps to keep the price low uh, on, on, on the Indian market. So they are stuck. Either you have an export ban or you are a relaxation of import duties. In both cases, you keep the price of food low for your constituency, the urban class, and this is at the expense of the farmers. So there were many reasons why, even before the farmers' laws, um, the Modi government was seen as pro-urban, pro-middle class, and anti-farmers. I think that's, yes, yeah, really, that's a really fair point. One thing that surprised me in 2019 was, so Monty has this, like, relatively, like, a wealthy urban base, but he also gained support in rural areas disproportionately. This is, like, the last bit of his political coalition. So I think he sees kind of a 10% support, 10 percentage point rise, rather, from farmers and kind of 5 percentage points from everywhere else and no doubt i know christoph you'll you'll cover the kind of um the cultural and the other hindu to the side of this but on the economic side of it it did seem like modi did respond in 2018 because i know he lost those uh three states in the hindu but i remember rajasthan like you know i'm forgetting the other two now but he loses the other two and then we have you know there were other public work schemes at the time but also particularly i'm thinking about the pm kasan scheme which was you know they paid 80 dollars to kind of 60 million families now that might not sound like a lot but as you pointed out poverty was rising in india the last official stats i've seen i think from 2040 which would be the last time they had the national poverty survey or someone's going to might correct me think one in seven living on less than two dollars a day so you providing 80 dollars a year is a huge kind of increase in your income and then you obviously you kind of have this kind of this last bit of your political coalition for monthly but also that means if they're the last people to join the farmers they're also the first ones to go you know we see that you know if you have your core base your core base will stick with you these guys are coming here. And one thing I think about with these protests, we've discussed a bit about Uttar Pradesh, is that Modi knows these people are, or these farmers are, if they leave, it does cause him problems. And particularly how he wants to remake the Indian state. If you want to remake the Indian state in in Modi's particular fashion, you have to have a huge win in the UP and in, uh, well, he's not going to win in Punjab, but certainly try and do a little bit better than he was expecting and particularly around 
you know, one thing I think of is actually look at what this decision might tell you is, is for Modi, what's more important? Is it remaking India as a Hindu first state or is it economic growth and improving people's lives? And in one sense, if Modi truly believed that these farm laws were the right thing to do, and bearing in mind he spent a year trying to push it, in the end, he chose to win a short-term election. And in my head, I think actually he's doing so because his first priority in government is not to improve the lot of uh, Indian incomes, if you like, but actually to remake it or remake India away from a secular republic and moving it towards this kind of Hindutva ideology. Yes, no, these are very important issues. And uh, uh, I would uh, comment upon the first point you made regarding uh, the 2019 elections, in which indeed uh, many poor people from rural India uh, supported BJP, supported Narendra Modi, in fact. For the reasons you've mentioned, uh, the, 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 the PM Kisan Yojana uh, was uh, a, a very shrewd move, uh, giving uh, uh, 2,000 rupees um, to um, the poor um, in, in village India was, was a move that uh, indeed meant a lot for many poor people. It was for one year, it was one shot. Uh, this program disappeared later on. But it was, of course, very timely just before the election. But there were other programs, you know, the uh, Swaj Bharat program, uh, building latrines uh, for the poor to, to contribute to uh, uh, an open defecation free India, uh, the Ujwal Yojana, uh, giving a gas cylinder uh, to um, poor women so that they could use gas and not gouden for uh, cooking. And that was something, again, one shot, because the refill was not taken care of by the state and the, the poor could not really easily get a refill. But you had also the Jandan Yojna, that was something uh, very symbolic, again, um, opening a bank account uh, and, and giving a plastic card uh, to the poor. You know, Modi was able with these programs to appear as pro-poor. And, and, and to be pro-poor is also something you see when you listen. His attempt at, at being pro-poor is something you see when you listen to Man Kibat, you know, the monthly program on radio that he has uh, established as early as 2014. And that is a very interesting way to relate to the poor, to, to take to give recognition to the poor, to give self-esteem to the poor. Um, and uh, and it's on radio precisely because the poor have a radio set. They, do, they don't have a TV set, but they have, they have the radio. So all this explains, uh, many of these things explain why in 2019 he could get the vote of so many poor people. There is one more factor, which to my mind is even more important. Many poor in India, many poor people in India are, are, are Dalits, um, ex-untouchables, Shilul caste. And as you know, Shilul caste um, benefit from reservations, from quotas uh, in the bureaucracy, in the public sector at large. These quotas have been cornered by some of the subcaste of the Dalits, the Jatavs in Uttar Pradesh, the Mahars in Maharashtra, and those who do not have access to these quotas are even more poor 
and felt and feel excluded and are resentful. And these dominant groups have their own parties, BSP for the Jatavs in Uttar Pradesh, for instance. So the non-Jatav Dalits, be they Balmikis or Katiks, whatever, will not support the Dalit party because it is a Jatav party. They are more poor and they will go the BGP side because BJP has been very good at nominating candidates from these caste groups and also making them feeling more Hindu. The Sanskritization process uh, is, at, is at its best in, in these quarters. So you have a paradox of reservations, a paradox of positive discrimination, which helps BJP to get supporters from the poor, from the poor Dalits, and therefore there is a caste explanation to the vote of the poor for BJP in 2019, and that's a very important artifact. Now, uh, as you said, the, the question uh, uh, is, uh, what is the plan? You know, what is the plan for Indian agriculture? Uh, because you can say, I'm going to double the revenue of the peasants by 2022. Well, the, how do you do that? So the farm laws, the farmers' laws, were probably um, seen as one of the means that could be used, because the idea was to let the big companies, the corporate sector, Ambani's uh, reliance. Uh, the Gautam Adani group uh, put money in agrofood. And, and, and that's certainly uh, what they were eager to do because they considered that this is the next domain where they can establish their own um, hegemony uh, with in investments on a huge scale. So that was probably the plan. Uh, it, it's, it's part of chronic capitalism in a way. Uh, Gautam Adani, uh, Mukesh Ambani, the two richest men, the two richest men in, in India uh, are supporting uh, the Modi government and BJP. So uh, the government had to pay back and to do something for them. But it's not only chronic capitalism, it's also an ideological vision of how you develop the agriculture. Agriculture is not supposed to be supported by the state anymore. Now we have the 1991 moment, you know, the liberalization moment that is uh, supposed to be extended to the uh, agricultural sector. Now this is over. That will not take place. What is the, the B plan? And that's why the, uh, the coming um, parliamentary session is very important because if you don't do um, what the farmer's laws were supposed to do, what do you do? Uh, what, 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 is the, um, what is the plan? And, and in fact, very surprisingly, we have the feeling that um, in a very amateurish manner, improvisation is probably the only thing that, that we will uh, uh, see uh, in, in, in the coming weeks. Everybody was taken by surprise by the decision of, of Prime Minister Modi to, to withdraw the, um, the farmers' laws. So 
there was no debate, there was no uh, attempt at building any consensus of any kind on, on a plan. Uh, there was no dialogue with the farmers' movements. The farmers were not associated to the making of these laws. The opposition parties were not uh, also uh, implicated. I think we have think tanks, we have people who, who have uh, thought about uh, the best uh, policies and uh, the, the, the Swaminathan uh, report is certainly something uh, that could be um, returned to the report of the Committee on Doubling Farmers' Income that had been constituted in 2016 under the chairmanship of Dr. Ashok Dalwai, has submitted its report to Modi government in September 2018. It is yet to be tabled and discussed in parliament. But here is another plan that uh, that could be uh, taken into account. Will they do it? Uh, this is really a question mark. Uh, but it's, it's quite disturbing to see that uh, uh, either you have Farmers laws rushed through a parliamentary session, uh, rejected by the farmers. You you waste one full year in protest, and then you're back to square one, and you don't know what is the B plan. And all these reports are yet to be tabled and discussed in parliament. That's why I maybe put improvisation. <laughs> maybe this tells us something about the ways in which Modi governs as a as a populist, right? So there's something I think about, you know, especially seeing this again, you've seen it time and time again. There's something about the governing idiom of populism, right? And in the end, it kind of, I think, ends up becoming a bit of a tautology. So for Modi and for Trump and for Bolsonaro, and I also think to some extent for Johnson, the question about what is the national good basically goes down the line of, well, I'm the leader and I represent the real people. Therefore, whatever I do is in the people's interests. And therefore, whatever I do is in the national good. And therefore, whatever I do is right. And with the farm law appeal, I think you've seen the same thing. Where Modi, as you said, didn't have any consultation, any kind of discussion about what this would mean, rammed it through because in Modi's life, or the way he sees the world, it appears is what he does is right. And this isn't the first time we've seen Modi pushed through something that was uh, not just opposed by the people, but also very damaging. I'm also thinking about demonetization, and in particular as well, of course, COVID. The first lockdown was an, um, a mess. The second, um, first lockdown was a mess, of course, clearly we're at this point where I think India has 4 million excess deaths, obviously not just from COVID, but largely from uh, the largest humanitarian catastrophe in India, I think, since partition. And in one sense, when, when Modi is incompetent, he has to kind of keep raising politics with these existential questions. You know, what does it mean to be Indian? I think there's a real contrast between 2014, it was Achadin, the good times are coming, to 2019, the Modi government again. And now you see time and time again, Modi push that kind of uh, populist line or, you know, for want of a better word, has to promote people as being un-Indian in order to kind of keep up the, the fire and the anger to keep him going. I suppose, Christoph, what do you kind of see this as like reflecting Modi's governance style in general or Saddles specifically here? It does, clearly. This is the, the top-down way um, he has now routinized. Uh, he relates to the people directly, short-circuiting all intermediaries, uh, and, and the result is uh, 
you ignore the representatives of the farmers, uh, you ignore all kinds of expertise. Uh, this is indeed a, a, a populist way uh, and, and therefore an authoritarian way of, of governing. Now, that has not worked. You know, this is, this is the first time Modi has to withdraw some of his laws. Well, you can say the second time. The first time came uh, immediately after um, the 2014 elections when uh, uh, there was uh, a, a, a way, an, an attempt at amending the Land Acquisition Rehabilitation and Resettlement Act, a very important act that the UPA government had passed in 2013. And we, that was a, a, a law that protected that protected the um, um, presence from the encroachment uh, of the industrialists on land. Well, it's interesting. The second time he has to withdraw a law is again vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the peasantry. And uh, it's much more significant this time because it's after 10 months minimum 10 months or of, of a conflict. And that may be a turning point because civil society is somewhat back. You have a peasant movement that had been very silent over the last 30 years. And the same movement that was very vocal, very active in the 80s, the BKU, Bartia Kisan Union, uh, is back, uh, and the same uh, family, the Tikites, uh, who were there in the late 80s, uh, are, are back also. So it may be a turning point. It will be very difficult now to do anything uh, regarding uh, agriculture without bringing these people in the picture. So the top-down modus operandi that we have just described may have to change, and some consultations may be needed, something Narendra Modi is not used to at all. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, look, let's to kind of, I suppose, to kind of wrap up to get to our final thoughts, but it has been heartwarming, certainly a social movement, uh, bring about change in India, obviously from like a personal perspective, that that means a lot to be given my heritage as a, as a Sikh Punjabi. I think secondly, of course, in economic policy, we're seeing here that people matter and that Modi... Uh, clearly, when he has conflict with what is a large group of people in India, at least half of the Indian population in agriculture at this point in time, you know, there isn't this abstract thing called the economy. There are people who produce and consume and you have to pay attention to them. And finally, I think as we've covered, I mean, Modi may not be good at policy, but is clearly very, very good at politics. Uh, and the backing down here clearly indicates that. Uh, what about you, Christoph? What are your final thoughts before we, before we wrap up? Yeah, I think uh, there'll be a new Modi government style for the last two years of the second term, for the coming two years, uh, because in two years we'll be again in an election campaign. Uh, and probably uh, we'll see a more policy-oriented, a more... Um, it depends also, it will also depend on what will happen in UP, because if the UP elections 
are, are not won or um, won with a very small majority, um, BGP will have to also factor that in. But even if BGP comes back with uh, a large majority in UP, I think these farmers, quote unquote, victory uh, will force the Modi government to add a more, uh, con I would say, congenial, collegial way of governing and parliament may even be consulted and a place for debate again. Fingers crossed. Uh, right, that seems like a good place to trap it up. Uh, I know you have to head off. So Christoph, finally, uh, for our Jam of the Week, you uh, we'd like to say our listeners what they would kind of listen to. What's your Jam of the Week for our listeners this week? I'm very fond of um, the kind of music uh, Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain used to play together, uh, not only because it's beautiful, but also because it's a symbol of uh, the Hindustani civilization, uh, combining uh, Hindu and the Muslim traditions, uh, Hindu and Muslim players. So I know it's a bit old fashioned. Ravi Shankar is no more. But uh, to be on memory lane is sometimes a good way to uh, rejoice. Fantastic. Okay, this is a good place to study. Um, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, we'll see you all later.